Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Knock, knock. Who's there? Mickey. Mickey who? Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mantle. Mickey Rourke. Mickey Finn. Mickey Dolans. Mickey Knox. Guilty? You bet your ass. But I think Charlie Manson said it best when he said, I'm, I'm not, not here, here, man. I'm, I'm not, not here. here. I don't blame Mickey or Mallory. I blame Ajax and Jack Frost and Frosted Flakes and Achy Breaky, Lyndon Johnson, Johnny Cash, Johnny Carson, Johnny Quest. I blame the Pope and Pop-Tarts, the Pope Peel Pocket Fisherman. Ah! I blame Jif and Jazz and O.J. Simpson, JFK, RFK, FDR, FBI, CIA, STP, AFL, CIO, ABC, NBC, JVC, VCR. I blame John Wilkes Booth and Mark David Chapman and Sir Han, Sir Han, Sir Han and Mary Tyler Moore. I blame all people who use three names. Big Bird, Judy, Barney, Judy. I blame Jesus Christ and John Bon Jovi. I stick my right index finger and weigh Newton's left eye. Eyeball. Not their parents, not drugs, not society at large. You know who I really blame? The Pittsburgh Pirates, because in 1947, Major League Baseball scouted a hot young pitching prospect named Fidel Castro. Hot out of Havana High, he had big speed and a nasty curveball, but at the last minute, the teams all rescinded their offer. Just think about that. If Fidel had been drafted, huh? huh? No Bay of Pigs, no Kennedy assassination, no cover-up, no Vietnam, no Nixon, no Ford, no Bell Bottoms, no Brady Bunch, no Earth Shoes, no Reagan, no Crack. No, we'd all be eating hot dogs and apple pie and smoking big, fat Cuban Cigars. M-I-C, see you real soon. K-E-Y, why? Because they want to, that's why. Okay. Uh, all right. James Rodinelli from Real Views says, Oliver Stone doesn't know the meaning of moderation or subtlety, and opts instead for something that is excessive and self-indulgent. It's as if he wants to shout out the statement, Look at what I can do. I'm an artist. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone says, This is one of my all-time favorite movies, and it put Oliver Stone on my list of best directors ever. Right along with Stanley Kubrick. Desson Thompson from the Washington Post said, Welcome to Natural Born Killers, Stone's empty, manic meditation on society's glorification of violence and the ugly heroes it loves to hate. That just sounds like he liked it. Our boy Roger Ebert from Chicago Sun-Times said, Seeing this movie once is not enough. The first time is for the visceral experience, the second time is for the meaning. Jeff Beck from Examiner.com says, It can easily be said that Natural Born Killers ranks among the worst films in Oliver Stone's filmography. It's an incompetently made attempt at drilling home an incredibly simplistic point that anyone can learn from turning on the news. And finally, Kevin Carr from 7M Pictures says, At times with this movie, the art overpowered the film. Oh, boy. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host. And I want to say a friend, but I don't really know if I can consider you a friend after making me watch this film. Uh, well, you know, it was necessary. It was, I think it's, it was a necessary step in the strengthening of our friendship and co-hosting duties. We, we had to go through this. 
trial by fire. Uh, I suppose so. As today, Julio and I are here to discuss Oliver Stone's epileptic, unfinished, and schizophrenic, just mess of a film, Natural Born Killers. Or you could call it a masterpiece if you actually pay attention and, and get it. If your review of a masterpiece is a two-hour-long music video. This is a very special episode of The Contrarians. We've made it to episode number 10. Which means that we're celebrating by having a gray area episode. We are taking a movie that is actually only halfway there in the Run Tomatoes meter. It's at 46%, which usually would mean that we can't do it on the show because it's right there in the middle. But no, this time we're tackling it and we're just taking the opposing views. Instead of fighting against Run Tomatoes, we're fighting against each other. So Natural Born Killers, or as I came to know it throughout the course of watching it as... The failed Devil's Rejects begins in a rustic diner somewhere off Highway Route 666. Our main characters, Mickey and Mallory Knox, are stopped in for a quick bite. We get our first bit of color tones from director Oliver Stone as Mickey orders a piece of key lime pie. We focus on the green, and it surely won't be the last time that we do this. It's called symbolism. Symbolism. Yeah, Yeah, deal with it. So we get a bunch of black and white fades with tilted shots, and it really feels like this is just an unfinished film right off the bat. I mean, I don't, I don't want to like play all my cards right away, but <laughs> I think that you have to keep in mind from the beginning that this movie is not your average movie. It's uh, you know, it's going for experimenting, and it's going about the way it is. It's, it's, it's just about challenging the audience. It's challenging your expectations, and it really wants you to fight back, and I think that that's maybe what put you off that you were, you know, you didn't want to fight them. You're used to movies that coddle you. This is not just a regular movie. This is art, and this is uh, meant to engage your brain and make you question, you know, what you consider truth. I just prefer movies that don't give me an aneurysm. I hate to say it might be one of my favorite parts right off the bat, or one of the parts I enjoyed the most was... Mallory Knox beating the shit out of some cowboy as L7 shitless plays, and that's only because I really like that song. Don't you think that that guy deserved to be, like, maybe not murdered, but certainly, like, you know, deserved to have uh, some pain inflicted on him? For objectifying Mallory? I mean, he was a douchebag from the beginning. Whatever. We move along to the opening credits as some of the worst audio mixing I've ever heard in film takes place as a bunch of clips play over Mickey and Mallory just driving throughout the country. I'm, I'm already lost at this point. It's meant to reflect their mental state, Alex. That's, you know, I, I don't know I don't know how many times you've murdered someone, but when you do, <laughs> that's what goes through your head. There's like, you know, the adrenaline rush and then, you know, the flashbacks to your to your childhood where you probably were abused. So we begin the movie after the opening credits with a takeoff of I Love Lucy entitled I Love Mallory, in which Oliver Stone presents the film as a 50s sitcom with Rodney Dangerfield playing the father of Mallory Knox, the alcoholic, abusive father who is very handsy with his daughter. I think that's a masterstroke on Oliver Stone's part because it really it would be a lot harder to take the horrible realities he's dealing with if he didn't frame it within, you know, the aesthetic of a sitcom, you know, a 50s sitcom. You can, you can actually handle, as an audience, you can handle the fact that Mallory's father... Rodney Dangerfield is abusing her. With a laugh track. Exactly. That that kind of diffuses the situation. It was, it, it, they need to ease you into the path, the violent path uh, that the movie's going to take you in later. Or just intensifies the just pretentiousness and unnecessarity of the entire film. At, at this point, I'm not even offended by the subject matter. It's just I'm my senses are ablaze in a no good way. But don't you think that, that you know, Ronnie Dangerfield, that's kind of like a brave decision to cast him as a sexually predatory father for that sequence? Don't you think that that's, that's him finally getting the respect he's been craving his entire career? 
This segues to Mickey and Mallory first meeting as Mickey delivers a big bag of meat to the house. And we get our first discussion of fate as Mickey and Mallory meet in the stairwell. And they discuss, I wonder if this is fate. And then they decide to go on a date and they steal Rodney Dangerfield's car. And Mickey is apprehended for Grand Theft Auto at that point and put in prison. And then we just cut to prison where he's just getting an H.J. from Juliette Lewis as they are having one of their visits. It's in black and white, of course. I'm not sure if this scene wasn't finished or what was going on. I don't think you've watched enough black and white movies, Alex. That's I've jobs. seen The Artist. <laughs> the best head jobs in movies happen in black and white. It you know, really invokes the starkness that comes with sexual pleasuring. What we're getting here into is the actual uh, heart of the movie, which is a love story. This movie is about love. It's a movie that posits the fact that when you're in love, it's you and the person you're in love with against the world. Really, sometimes things get bloody, but that's how they're supposed to be if your love is going to continue. It's, it's really hard, and that's why you actually see her visiting him in prison. If this had been like just like a one-off thing, then she wouldn't be back there. But no, she comes back for him, and then later he'll come back for her. That's true love, and that's really the spine of this movie, is them fighting for their love against everything else. Have you ever been in love, Alex? I'm not sure. Not uh, to this well, extent. The, well, then, there you go. You know what? The, the, the day that you fall in love and end up, like, murdering people just to be with the one you love, that's when you can really appreciate this movie. So then, moving along, we get a shot of Mickey working with some horses and sheriffs in the middle of a desert somewhere. Not really explained why, but this big sandstorm picks up, and it allows Mickey to escape from isn't, the clutches of the law. Isn't he supposed to be in Texas? Isn't that, isn't that like, I the Texas know. part? I don't know. that explains the horses and everything else? I think it's just where Oliver Stone wanted it to happen at this point. Mickey escapes, he returns home to rescue Mallory from the clutches of Rodney Dangerfield. And this part, come on, shows this man, this child abusive, molesting father, alcoholic, sitting at home and watching wrestling, professional <laughs> wrestling. Uh, you know, it's I've not- got a college degree, I've traveled the country, I feel very cultured, and I'm a wrestling fan, and this is just insulting. Fuck you, Oliver Stone. I, I think that realism hurts sometimes. <laughs> So Mickey and Mallory brutally murder Rodney Dangerfield and his wife, and they set free Mallory's younger brother, who there wasn't really much to him. He had a tattoo or like some sort of face paint. Uh, he had the... I think he was a wrestling fan, too. Yeah. That explains that. <laughs> and they let him live, see? So, it's all good. Mickey and Mallory get married despite having only gone on one date so far, so I guess your theory of true love must be accurate. Okay, okay. it's like one date, then a series of what I'm assuming were like conjugal visits, you know, in prison. And then two murders. And then two murders. I mean, that's more than a lot of marriages get. So I I think you're underestimating their passion. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that they don't just get married, like, in a normal boring ceremony, you know? They cut their hands, and then they, like, drip blood on the river. They're, like, standing on a bridge. It's very romantic. (sighs) Moving along... We are introduced to Wayne Gale, who hosts a show called American Maniacs, and this becomes a pretty prominent part of the story. Wayne Gale is played by Robert Downey Jr., an Australian journalist, which the only thing I can think of that Robert Downey Jr. was worse in than this would have been The Soloist. First off, let me open with a question. Do you like Tropic Thunder? I love Tropic Thunder. Okay, well then, I'm sorry, but Tropic Thunder is just basically this performance. This is a precursor to it. Yeah, it's like all he did was put blackface on, but he's still like <laughs> he's doing the same Australian accent, and he's he's also being just as funny. He's just as funny in Tropic Thunder as he is in in this movie. And then he has that sweet mullet in the early parts of the movie. His hair is all over the place. It's awesome. It's, it's he's just great. He's really funny. 
I, I love him. Clearly inspired by real-life journalist Geraldo Rivera, Wayne Gale just goes for the shocking stories and what the whatever pops ratings and whatnot. This segues into what has taken the world over as Mickey and Mallory mania, showing just the glorification and like how they're kind of rock stars in pop culture. Yeah, I, and it's, it's, see, you're getting mad at Stone for, for showing this, for like, but really, it's just reality. I mean, he's criticizing America and the world, eventually, because they show you that, you know, Tokyo and London and all these other places are also going crazy for Mickey Mallory. I think, is it is it just upsetting you that he's holding this mirror to your face and, and telling you, listen, this is all your fault. You're part of the problem, Alex Mattis. You eat it up when the media shows you this, and you play along. Moving along. <laughs> Mickey and Mallory get in a fight in this hotel room they have over sex because Mickey wants to introduce a woman he's taken hostage into the bed. Yeah, you can tell that story and you don't have to do stuff like this, like women getting tortured and shit. Okay, I'll, I'll give you this, like the hostage point. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but I'm pretty sure, and then I looked it up online... We watched the director's cut for this one, which really is not that different from the original cut. It has, like, just a There's couple, just, like, like four things. minutes of pure gore that's inserted throughout. And there's just, like, maybe four seconds of, uh, of extra footage from the hostage. In the original cut, they don't show you Mickey raping her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's heavily implied, <laughs> because, yeah. you know, but you just don't see it again. Like, Mallory leaves the room and says, well, you can fuck her if you want to. And then he's like, well, maybe I will. And then it cuts to whatever Mallory's doing. You don't really see Mickey doing anything. In this cut, you actually get like a couple of really brief shots where it's very clear that you know he went at her, and just another one of those ten second parts throughout the movie that's just a montage of like stock footage, Mickey standing covered in blood. Ugh. It's uh, so just non sequitur things happening. Him abusing the innocent hostage is almost indefensible, and I think that it's kind of like it's a mistake of the director's cut, including that. I think that it was better, especially considering the way the movie goes and what it's trying to say. But at the same time, I think it's Oliver Stone trusting his audience that they can, in a way, not be entirely confused by that, you know? Because really, the other thing that he's doing throughout the movie is showing you how tortured these two people have been since they were kids. You know, there's numerous solutions to Mickey also having grown up in this abusive environment. And yes, he does horrible things, but it's not his fault. That's just a product of the environment that he was brought up in. So, I mean, it sucks to be that hostage, and it sucks to be me having to defend this. <laughs> but so he's already, at this point, he's already failed at making a film about turning like the mirror on the media. And then he's failed about making a movie about a couple of psychopathic serial killers. Years later, Rob Zombie would go on to make a film that succeeded on both accounts. But failed at being entertaining at all, if we're talking about Devil's Rejects. Oh, we are. And we'll get to many more points of where this failed, where Devil's Rejects prevailed. The other thing is, we're still in build-up mode. I mean, we haven't even... We're about to, but we haven't even met. We're about to hit the the low and highlight of this (laughs) film. so. So after this fight... Uh, Mickey, as we mentioned, has his way with his victim. We cut to a gas station where uh, Mallory walks into a green garage. We got green again. And seduces this pump jockey as they're getting into it. She starts having flashbacks of her father and just pulls out a gun and 
kills this innocent man. Okay. What did the Come green on. have to do with this? Okay, first off, green equals life. So this is Oliver Stone being, you know, <laughs> ironic. He's actually playing with your head. There's, he's subverting expectations like he does through the entire movie. Secondly, I'm sorry, but how stupid do you have to be? <laughs> to... The kid realizes it's Mallory Knox halfway through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much like my argument uh, when we're watching Jaws, I mean, this is sort of what you call it. You know, this is evolution taking place. This is uh, natural selection. This is, you know, that kid... In in a way, it was he was gonna die sooner or later, so might as well die, you know, as part of Mallory's journey. And yeah, the other thing is, she didn't kill him until he said, Oh shit, you're Mallory, so. Moving on. Business really picks up though, as we're introduced to the lone highlight of the film, Detective Jack Scagnetti, played by Tom fucking Sizemore. Yes! Who brings the bacon into this film, I'm telling you. Now, see, Jordan Jr. is playing a version of what he's gonna play in Tropic Thunder, and Woody Harrelson, you haven't seen True Detective, have you? No. Not well, yet. I think that Matthew McConaughey's performance in True Detective is very much inspired by Woody Harrelson's performance here, especially as we get into like more of his speeches uh, in the second half of the movie when he's being interviewed. That is Matthew McConaughey's speeches from True Detective. So in a way, Harrelson is playing the future Matthew McConaughey. Tom Sizemore, on the other hand, I have this feeling that he's playing himself. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it's not as if I'm coming it up, coming up with it out of nowhere. I mean, just based on like all disturbing news stories about him, you know, and his private life and everything. You know, you I, I don't want to like go too far with this, but he does kind of strike me as the kind of guy that would kill a prostitute. <laughs> but that's that makes him riveting to watch in this movie. Yeah, he's he's great. Every time he's on screen, he's on fire. Skagnetti on Skagnetti. Skagnetti and Skagnetti. Yeah. So we get a bunch of pointless meandering with Mickey and Mallard just driving around the desert and getting lost. Trying to avoid the police. Don't jump over my favorite part of that whole Skagnetti introduction. He's going over the crime scene and he picks out one of Mallory's pubic hairs out of the, the dead jockey's mouth. Is it Mallory Knox? Was it nice to meet you? Or, or meet Jack Skagnetti? <laughs> Mallory Knox, meet Jack Skagnetti. <laughs> God. He would never again in his career get this good writing. That is... Not necessarily that, just writing that like so properly accented and complimented his abilities. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It was it was perfect material meeting perfect performer. <laughs> so yeah, pointless meandering throughout the desert. They eventually run out of gas and get into a fight, and then they just stumble up upon a small shack where they meet an Indian shaman. It's not pointless. It's just. It's actually, in a way, the movie's showing you there's consequences to their acts. As horrible as it was to, to see Mickey abused at hostage, really, I think that that's part of what breaks them apart, you know, in this section of the movie. You know, the honeymoon phase is over, and now they're, you know, they're, they're coming to terms with the kind of people they are, much like in many marriages. I mean, this is just, like, them fighting, and, and that manifests itself in their arguments, but also in the way that the environment starts turning against them, you know? Suddenly, like... They get paranoid about cops, and they run out of gas, and they're in the desert, and that is just, it's kind of like the universe is taking them on the next step of this journey of illumination. So they get to the shack with this Indian shaman who lights a fire and gives them a bunch of speeches about life and whatnot, despite the fact that they can't understand what the hell he's saying. They're surrounded by snakes and whatnot. The Indian tells the old wise tale about the snake and the block of ice. As you point out, Julio, Mickey and Mallory have this moment of self-realization. You, you sound a little bored with the sequence, and I think that that's you actually proving Oliver Stone's point. You know, as soon as the movie stopped being about violence and horrible things, and it becomes about, like, spirituality, then you tuned out. And you're no. like, oh, the no. fucking shaman. Who's, who cares about this? As soon as Juliette Lewis utters the line, I think we're the demons. 
That's when I just threw my hands up and said Oliver Stone has no balls. <laughs> he had balls like a true director like Rob Zombie. In The Devil's Rejects, Bill Mosley has a man hostage and he looks him dead in the eyes and says, I am the devil. So Rob Zombie is embracing that some people are just born bad and meant to be bad. Whereas here, Oliver Stone's painting this picture of these, oh, daddy didn't love me enough type thing. When was Devil's Rejects made? 2005? When was this movie made? 1994. You can't, you know, expect... And I don't even think that Devil's Rejects is a good movie. But, regardless of its quality, the people from 1993 were not ready for somebody to just come out and say, I am the demon. You know, they needed to soften it a little. Uh, you know, you put it on their t-shirts, because they have, like, that sequence where, like, the shaman is... He can see, like, the word demon printed on, on uh, Mickey's t-shirt. And then you just say, I'm the demon. You say... I think we're the demons. <laughs> that makes all the difference. And really, by the way, did you know that that shaman is uh, played by Oliver Stone? <laughs> <laughs> Heavy prosthetics, but that's him. Oh, fuck. So Mickey has this big fever dream that I can't really tell if it was induced by the shaman stories, or they were like doing mushrooms too, so I think it was just a big combination of everything. He was, he was preparing something. He, he made him drink something, I think. So Mickey has this big fever dream... And, you know, in the midst of it, gets spooked and shoots and kills the shaman. And the shaman says, 20 years ago in my dream, I saw a demon. I've been waiting for you. He knew it was coming. And I don't think it counts as murder if the person knew that it was going to happen. That's somewhere in some law. Basically, he knew that it was coming and he set the whole scene up knowing what the outcome was. So, I don't count that as a murder. They do, though. So they get their shit and run, and they're on the escape, and there is just a field of rattlesnakes awaiting them. Like, all sarcasm aside and everything... This was, like, one of the parts of the film where I was really confused because Mallory, Juliette Lewis, breaks the fourth wall, and it's the only point in that movie that that happens that's not a, a lone shot of someone staring at the camera and stuff, like the little demon shots. She looks into the camera and just goes, why, why, and then turns to Mickey and says, why? I don't, I don't think she was looking at the camera. I oh, think she was. <laughs> well, then, all of a sudden, even more genius than I thought. Like, I, I missed that part, but obviously she was I think I was just you. so bored at this point and just, like, agitated with what I was watching that I, think I was she's looking for something she's to be challenging the viewer. He's like, why? Why? Can you tell me why? And of course, the, <laughs> the people that are watching, it's like, I have no idea. It's, it's a very important point in the movie. You know, this is when they really, they start doubting themselves. Their actions bite back. Ah, see? You get it. You, you try to fight it, but you get it. No. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny how the snake usually represents, you know, ever since, like, the Garden of Eden, the snake is something bad. But here, the snake, actually, it's an instrument of uh, justice. You know, it bites both of them. And sets him off in their path. No, it's life. That's what he's trying to say, because that's why he didn't tell the fable of the snake and the block of ice. Because they can think that they're going to get away with everything, but eventually something's going to bite them back. So both of them are bitten by rattlesnakes. They start dying. They get in the car. They take off. There's a bunch of pointless strobe effects. Like, zombies are trying to get him at one point. I think the problem is, like, you were not... You haven't lived enough to be... You haven't been in love. You haven't murdered anyone. I haven't been bitten by a snake. Exactly. Let me tell you, when a snake bites you, that's... That kind of acid trip, that's exactly what happens. Okay, well, if it looks like a Bush music video when I get bitten by a snake, then I'll buy it. So they're driving. They're trying to find the anecdote and whatnot. But when we cut to Jack Scagnetti with a hooker, a thong-clad Tom Sizemore sitting in a Fearless bed. performance by Tom Sizemore. And, well, yeah. You probably didn't even have to go to wardrobe. He's like, I'll bring my own. <laughs> he's got his Kramer hair, and he's smoking a cigarette. That's Tom Sizemore's apartment. That's Tom Sizemore's tongue. And that's Tom Sizemore's hooker, probably. <laughs> he just called Oliver Stone. He's like, come on over. I got everything over here already. 
Forget the script. Let's just just shoot me on Saturday night. <laughs> Inevitably, he kills the hooker. He strangles her to death for no real reason other than I can he, only he wants to feel. I I can only think this would be what Rob Zombie would eventually improve upon with William Forsythe and Devil's Rejects because they're trying to say that like you know. He's so obsessed with getting them that the, he he himself becomes a killer. It takes a monster to catch a monster. But yeah, William Forsythe actually wrecks some shit in Devil's Rejects. Okay, it sounds like you're just completely shrugging off the fact that he murdered a woman. I mean, no, I'm, that's fine. But like, <laughs> I'm, that's fine. That's that's okay. All the cops should do that just so they can like you know get tough after murdering her and getting scratched pretty badly. You know, she she puts up a fight, a little bit of a fight. Then he utters, uh, the Mickey, I'm coming to get you. <laughs> that is fantastic. I love that line. Yes, again, I'm very just not into this movie at all, but I didn't have a problem sitting through it just for Tom Sizemore and another character who we'll get to here in a little bit. We go to the green drugstore where everything's green. Life. Called Drug Zone, yes, life. This is where I threw up my arm and my pen and my notebook. <laughs> There's a giant aisle of snake bite anecdote, and it's all sold out. It's as though it was like the Furby of the time, that they had a huge section of it reserved, but it was all gone. So they're in the middle of this drug store dying. Can you explain to me the relevance of the, the snake venom being sold out? Well, yeah, one. Or the symbolism? <laughs> okay, I think there's another thing you're missing here, Alex, and it's that this is a comedy. We haven't brought it up yet, but <laughs> this is clearly a comedy. This is just like a really funny gag. You know, you go to the you go to the store, and then whatever you're looking for is sold out, and it's called exactly what you're looking for. So you know, uh, in this case, they're looking for a uh, snake juice, and snake juice is out. The other thing is they're still tripping on snake venom, so. And presumably mushrooms and, and whatever mushrooms the hell they drink. Or... They had. So, you know, they what you're seeing in this scene is not exactly reality. It's still, they're still tripping. Come on, you have to keep up with the movie, man. <laughs> There's one employee left in the drugstore, and it's a pharmacist who happens to be watching American Maniacs as they're profiling Mickey and Mallory. And Mickey comes up, and he's wanting some snake juice. And the pharmacist, of course, sees what's going on and sounds the alarm. Mickey comes in, roughs him up, shoots him, kills him. The police show up. There's a big shootout with the police that Mickey has. There's an Asian reporter for some reason on the scene. Alright, don't act like it hasn't been established that they're big in Tokyo. Because there was like a couple of shots where uh, there were people speaking not English. So it's just some mediocre small town police having it out with Mickey. And then Jack Scagnetti shows up and shit really gets real. He's not playing around. He grabs Mallory. And he, he threatens to cut her breasts off. Swear to God, I'll cut her fucking tits off! Mickey finally, he's, he's not going to let that happen. So he comes out, has a standoff with Scagnetti, which didn't really go on long enough, because I was just trying to get more time with Jack Scagnetti on camera. But then, of course, the, they just let the police have at him, and it's just intense police brutality. Mickey and Mallory get taken in. Again, Rob Zombie would improve upon this years later. He would add the track of Freebird to it, and it would be a much more climactic ending. And then end the movie instead of continuing into like more complex territory like this movie's about to do. Mickey and Mallory just painted out to be far inferior killers in this, because in Devil's Rejects, it takes hiring bounty killers to get them captured, and even they can't contain them. Anyway. Yeah, because that's just, like, that's the easy way out. It goes back to me telling you how, like, the movie is challenging. And here's, like, where it comes, like, the master turn. Because 
we're roughly halfway through the movie. We spend the first half seeing how horrible these people are with just glimpses of their humanity. And now the second half of the movie is actually going to make you root for them, you know, as their, you know, their escape from prison uh, progresses. That is a very, very tricky thing to pull off. And I think Oliver Stone knows exactly what he's doing because even now you were like getting all excited about, you know, Skegnetti when he's a horrible person. <laughs> so, you know, you let the movie... I'm not excited <laughs> about Jack Skegnetti. I'm excited about Tom Sizemore. <laughs> Moving along. Let's, let's get into like the really complex part of the movie that Rob Zombie was afraid of and that's why he ended Devil's Rejects early. Or on time, because you're saying at this point we're rooting for them. I'm just rooting for them to escape so the movie can be over. We go to one year later when we are at a penitentiary. Mickey and Mallory Knox are locked up at when we meet our second ray of sunshine in this film, Tommy Lee Jones, who plays Warden Dwight McCluskey. And his performance in this film makes his performance as Harvey Dent in Batman Forever look like an Oscar-worthy performance. Yes, uh, Tommy Lee Jones doesn't say it, he's present in this one. He is uh, pretty much, every other shot of him speaking has just litters of saliva flying at whoever happens to be on the other side. Skagnetti's in because he needs to visit with Mickey and Mallory, just to get down to the case more. It's explained why he got into criminology and um, why he's a detective in the way he is. Nice shout out to UT. Yeah, the UT shooting. And one of the most interesting scenes of the film is him and... Tommy Lee Jones, Warden McCluskey, just walking through. It's a very dialogue-heavy scene, and it's one of the only really tranquil scenes in the entire film, and it feels like it has a purpose, and I'm buying the acting and buying what's going on here. Wayne Gale happens to be there the same day, and he's trying to orchestrate a sit-down interview after the Super Bowl to have a live interview with Mickey Knox to recap the trial. We go then to a montage that showed their trial where they're just mobbed like the Beatles outside of... I had stopped taking notes at this point. I was I was off track, man. <laughs> of course, Mickey agrees to do the sit-down interview, you know, just to feed his own ego, and he's a sociopath. No, after. no, no, no. It's not just that he's a, he is. I think that you missed the part where they're actually they're going to uh, I guess lobotomize him or something because they're gonna they say they're transferring him to a mental asylum, and that's where, where they're gonna electroshock him. So that's why Tommy Lee Jones is sort of like under the table hiring Skegnetti to make sure that that Mickey and Mallory never even make it to the mental asylum. He's going to kill them on the way there. And uh, and that's why Robert Downey Jr. is trying to get this interview before they get to the mental asylum. You were not paying attention. Yeah, I was mapping out my grocery <laughs> list in my head. I'm, I'm glad you were. Yeah, that's a, you know, so it's not that Mickey's giving this interview because of his ego. He's giving this interview because he knows this is his last opportunity to ask for forgiveness of the world. He knows, you know... This is his last chance to set things right. All right, so Mickey agrees to do the interview. We get a shot of before the Super Bowl, Mickey shaving his head, prepping for his big interview. There's honestly, even if I was trying, I don't see any symbolism there or any like reason for that. He's shedding his skin like a snake. Oh, God. <laughs> Also, we get like a very haunting performance from Juliette Lewis uh, when they come to check on her, Tommy Lee Jones and Skegnetti, and then she's singing in her cell, and there's just like this very brief, angelic moment where she's singing. It reminded me of, uh, uh, I'm sure she was inspired by this, uh, Carrie Mulligan in Shame. You know, when she, <laughs> when she sings, that is kind of like the tone of this. The, these I could have used things. for a single tear on Tom Sizemore's <laughs> face. Maybe maybe it was there and it just got cut out. This By some of the lighting that didn't make any sense at all? <laughs> yes. Or the, the angle? Well, there's no place for tears here. There is none. None. Yeah, it's especially there throughout the course of the film. They really try to paint Juliette Lewis as the sympathetic character. 
Well, it's certainly the more uh, the most innocent out of everybody there. Like the whole she might not have been evil before Mickey corrupted her type thing. But you can say the same about Mickey. See, that's the thing. Like uh, Mickey, you know, he might have been evil if his dad wasn't such a brutal asshole. Yeah. So, so you're coming around. It's to the nature my... <laughs> versus nurture argument. Ward McCluskey death proofs the interview room, and it's this montage of him finding all things that could be used as utensils of pain or even murder. He is the only noble character in this entire film. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> because he's just looking out for, like, safety and justice. No, he's not. <laughs> he's actually, he doesn't care it's about It's not justice. his fault he's got an overcrowded prison. He's got to, like, be the biggest asshole he can be. He, he is, runs a tight ship. He is plotting and scheming with Cagnetti to, to get Mickey Mallory killed. That's not just, he's going against justice. I mean, you know. They've killed 52 people at this point. They need to be put out to pasture. I mean, they're going to mental asylum. You know, that, that was enough. But no, McCloskey wanted them dead. That is not a noble person. So he's either noble or he's just trying to cover his own ass. So it's either one of <laughs> <laughs> so we get the big Super Bowl interview. Uh, the Cowboys have won the Super Bowl and it immediately switches over to American Maniacs. And we're sitting down live with Mickey Knox and Wayne Gale. And I just have rambling written down. Uh, okay, listen. Oh, I have rambling and endless stock footage written down. <laughs> First off, let's give Robert Downey Jr. a little more credit here. Because that's the other thing that I wrote in my notes. And was, Robert Downey Jr. is the Ethan Embry... Of, of, <laughs> of natural born killers. Uh, and for those uh, of you who, for some reason, didn't listen to our Empire Records episode. Episode it, 8. Yeah. Ethan Embry makes the most out of what he's given in that he really, he set out to make an impression. And I think that's the same, the same could be said about Robert Downey Jr. here. He just, he takes every line and just acts the shit out of it. Yeah, the, he, it's very, there's no holding back at all. He, I said this while you're watching it, I feel he really got what, the tone of the movie was meant to be, whereas everyone else, like Mickey and Mallory, or uh, Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis, played it very straight and narrow, and then Tom Sizemore played it over the top, but in a hauntingly realistic fashion. <laughs> Tom Sizemore didn't play it. He was just being himself. <laughs> he was here, and this, he, this is what you get. And then Tommy Lee Jones, I think, almost went to a sarcastic degree. I think that we should rank, and not right now, but it's about we should rank like the performances in Natural Born Killers by by how over the top they are. But going back to your point, yeah, and like we haven't even come close to reaching how over the top Robert Downey Jr. Gets. He is. I mean, why does he have the Australian accent? I don't know, but it's it's just amazing. I love it. That's <laughs> you know the way he says every every line is great, and of course we're building up to this, you know, the the interview because that's Downey Jr. versus Woody Harrelson, and it's it has so many different shades because when he's on camera, he antagonizes him. As soon as they cut the commercial, it literally has shades because it'll be lit in red in one scene, and then lit in blue, <laughs> and then green. And, and this is where uh, it's a shame you haven't seen True Detective because then you would see the parallels. You know, <laughs> this rambling that you call it, it's, it's really it's full of truth. It's full of like you know what what the movie's really about. And they have to feed it to you in the, in the form of rambling because otherwise people just would it would be too much for them. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so rambling, Mickey talks about shadow. You can't escape your shadow. And the demon... Is he wrong? Can you escape your shadow? And keeps talking, and the demon, and love can beat the demon. And then we get <laughs> our best comedically delivered line of the whole film, when Robert Downey Jr. says, Only love can defeat the demon. 
hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> and then you cut to the polar bears, the Coke polar bears, which, you know, I hate to have to spell it out for you, Alex, but that is, you know, they're blaming the media. And that is, you know, you just, you come out of like this horrible, really disturbing interview with a killer and then you just go to commercials and, you know. You know, I understand all you're saying. I just, it doesn't make this a good film at all. <laughs> you know, it was a good film, Devil's Rejects. <laughs> I didn't see any Coke bears there, so... No, because there's no room for that commercialized bullshit in a, in a true film <laughs> with a director who had some balls. So we come back, and you know the whole movie is building to this one point, and you know it, and keeps probing, and Woody Harrelson, Mickey Knox, finally says, Shit, man, I'm a natural-born killer. <laughs> that is... <laughs> it's usually 99 out of 100 times when a character in a movie explicitly says the title of the movie is cheesy as hell. But in this instance, it works. The movie's earned it. You've seen Woody Harrelson, Mickey, come through this journey to this realization. And he just shares it with the world. And it's not just like this random thing either that, you know, you could cut out and then the movie would be the same. Because that is the trigger. Everything that happens next in the movie is because he said those words on live television. Well, you know what movie didn't need to say its title? Devil's Rejects. Well, yeah, because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Where is the devil in, in, in Devil's Rejects? That's the point. They're demons on Earth. They're hell on Earth. Like, the devil didn't even want them. Ah, uh, that's... That, show me that there's no... Where is that in the movie? It's not. You're just, like, making things up. I'm not making things up. It's a good movie. And he's a good director. If it started with, like, a prologue where you saw him, like, cast out of hell, then I would understand. They're, but, they're hell on Earth. Come on. Well, if hell is on earth, then there's no real hell, which means that they... Where is no, the they hell? are hell on earth. The devil wouldn't even... There was no vacancies left in hell, and they you kicked can't, out. You can't have two hells. You either have, like, hell on earth, or you have the hell under earth. Man, I've still got a few more analogies left, so we'll get back to it. But anyway, after he says natural born killer, a riot breaks out in the prison, and Tommy Lee Jones gets the phone call about it and shuts down the interview. I really wish we could have sound bites of, like, everything he says in this, because he just strings curse words together, and it's amazing. So there's a big riot going on, and this is where the epileptic feel of the film is just at an all-time high. And what is that supposed to be telling me? When it's black and white, and then it's like just grayscale, and it's tilted, what, what is that? Uh, well, I have two theories about black and white, actually, because I was, I was trying to figure out a pattern while I was watching it. And, you know, it's not like the green stuff, where like you can kind of tell like what the green... Oh, was well, something green... You know, we're seeing green stuff, so something really violent is going to happen. Uh, I think the black and white might have just actually been just like in Kill Bill, an attempt at lowering the rating, maybe, because it's too gory if you see it in color. That is like kind of like less interesting way of reading it. The more interesting way of reading it, and I'll give Oliver Stone credit, you know, and, and believe that this is what, what happened, uh, it's just supposed to throw you off everything. You know, the, the constant changing of colors, the constant, like, angles and repetition and out-of-sync stuff, that is, that is the killer's mindset. That is, you know, chaos in your mind, and that is what this world can reduce you to. If, if you happen they to only in, see things in black and white. Sometimes, and sometimes you see it in color. You know, the love stuff is in color. You know, love clears your mind. The oh, media God. muddles it. it it's a, come on, Jesus. you have to. It's like they say at some point, you, know, you have to meet the movie halfway. You have to be willing to be illuminated by it. So we go back to the holding cell where Mickey is, and a Rage Against the Machine music video breaks out as Mickey tells the joke to distract all the guards. Grabs a shotgun and starts firing his bomb track by Rage Against the Machine, which is an amazing song, by the way. Starts playing in the background, and just some more rage is going on in the background, literally and figuratively. 
Mickey devises the plan that he's going to take Wayne Gale live broadcasting the riot, so he grabs his producer, his cameraman, and his camera, and they have a couple guards hostage, and they go head on into the beast, into the riot, and it begins broadcasting. You know, live. they get, when we first meet Tommy Lee Jones, you get introduced to two of his, like, I guess his, his top henchmen, his top guards. One is Kavanaugh, who gets taken hostage uh, when Mickey escapes. The other guy, who's my favorite, I don't even know, I don't think we see what happens to him. <laughs> he's the guy that's, you know, he's bold, and he likes to, like, make a weird, like, face when he's talking. I don't remember his name. Warnock? Well, I don't know. So this guy, yeah, I don't remember his name, but he's the other guy. And it's funny, because we see Kavanaugh's fate, you know, he's there through the entire escape. And this other guy who we've also been focusing on, we actually, I don't think that we see him again. I don't think that we, you know, he breaks the news to uh, Tumbley Jones that the riot has, has started, and then I think he disappears. Could be wrong. I mean, there's so much going on in this movie, you can't really appreciate everything on, like, you know, two, three, four watches. You, you have to keep watching every year just you, to You say appreciate, I say yeah. keep up with. You know, maybe, maybe ten times from now, I'll finally figure out what happened to that guy. <laughs> But I think that's the point, you know? I know you've never been in a, in a prison riot. If you had, maybe you'd appreciate it a little better <laughs> just how chaotic things get. And sometimes, you know, the guard that you knew gets lost in the shuffle and you never you have to wonder forever if he died or not. So we go back to Mallory's holding cell where she is... I can't figure out if she seduces Jack or Jack seduces her, but I think since she gets the upper hand in the end, it's her seducing him. Well, love is, uh, love is complicated and she's only human and... As we've already seen... Scagnetti has a thing for kind of mentally unstable, broken women. And he has a way with the ladies as well. He actually convinces her to uh, pinch his nipple real hard. <laughs> it was destiny from the moment he found that pubic hair to now. This, this <laughs> yes. was a lifetime in the making. Yeah, no, I mean, okay, all kidding aside, though, no, she seduces him. She, she yeah. plays him, you know, because she's smarter than him. And then headbutts the shit out of him and breaks his nose. He beats her down and just starts macing her relentlessly. Well, the only reason that he gets the upper hand is because the other guards, mm -hmm. you know, come in. Otherwise, she would have killed him. The riot continues being broadcast live. Even one of the local affiliates chimes in on it and is broadcasting it live now, which, you know, would be really smart to do. But I think that's the point of the film. So. Well, yeah, and also you know that people are eating it up. You see this footage of people like just running to their TVs to see what's going on. Mickey and Wayne and the crew bust through to Mallory's holding cell uh, where she's there, and Jack and Mickey have a big standoff. Mallory comes to after being maced and stabs Jack right in the throat. <laughs> and then Mickey points the gun at him and shoots him only to reveal it was empty, had no more shells in it, to which Jack comically smacks his forehead in a moment of disbelief. That is awesome. I, I mean, I don't know how I can make you appreciate that moment of comedic genius, other than point out that, okay, if you were doubting that this was a comedy, <laughs> that is the only explanation to that shot. That would be the only, yeah, unless this was supposed to be an 80s comedy, then... Anyway, Mallory takes a gun out, asks Jack if he still thinks she's sexy, and then blows his head off. We cut to like a control room where McCluskey is just flipping out. He's sweating profusely, spitting everywhere. On his walk to the control room, I think my favorite line that he had was... Someone hands him a big stack of papers and he says, What is this? He says, it's a list of prisoners. What the fuck can I do with that? <laughs> a comedy, like I said. It's clear at this point, Robert Downey Jr., Wayne Gale, has had a serious case of Stockholm Syndrome, and he just starts going nuts, grabs a gun, just starts firing off. Not in a very good way, but... Well, but it's also, it's not just Stockholm Syndrome. I think it goes deeper than that. I think that he's, he's finally seeing through 
the, the lies that he's been living in. You know, he goes from being part of the media, part of the problem, to suddenly embracing this, this rebellious uh, nature of Mickey Mallory and actually going against establishment. Okay. And then <laughs> the prisoner Owen comes along, or the Ken Foree character from Devil's Rejects, and offers help and refuge, leads them astray, gives them some shelter temporarily, and eventually leads to a big standoff with the prison guards. Before their final stand with the authority, they duck into a shower that is conveniently lit green. You need to give people some, some, some help. You need to, you know, hint, give them clues uh, as to what's going to happen next. Danny Jr. is just losing at this point. He calls his wife and dumps her, and then he calls his girlfriend, and then she dumps him. So he's got nothing left to lose at this point. Mickey and Mallory escape with Wayne, Owen, and what was the deputy's name? Kavanaugh, who's like pretty much dead by now. He's being shot several times. Oh, there's another one. Okay, you're talking about like the other guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the guy that had glasses and then he yeah. doesn't have glasses later on. Duncan something. Oh, they sacrifice Kavanaugh. They just throw him to the wolves. And yeah. Get shot. Well, no, but Tommy Lee Jones dares him. He's the yeah. one that goes like, oh, he's already dead, and then they throw him out. But anyway, so they have Wayne Gale and the deputy with shotguns tied to their heads. They're just leading him through, kind of like their shields that no one will touch. Because they're broadcasting. Yes. That's, come on, don't, don't take away from their master plan. The way the, the only reason this works is because they're broadcasting live, you know. So Tommy Lee Jones can't really, he'll be responsible for those deaths on live TV if he actually did something to them. They lead him through, and the McCluskey and the guards can't really touch him, so they get to the front gate, get through it, and shut it behind him. And McCluskey's doom is at the hands of all the prisoners as he, they completely disembowel him. He gets what he had coming. That's for being a corrupt officer. His head officer. ripped off and put on a pike. <laughs> I will not accuse this movie of being subtle. So <laughs> that's, that's really the only way that his character could make his end. So, Anything else would be a letdown. This whole prison riot, I mean, you're complaining about how it's shot and how it's edited. But really, that is the logical point that this movie is, is heading towards. You know, the way that, that it starts and the way that it ends, that's that's in crescendo. That's, you know, that's how it works. We cut to a field, like a desolate field, somewhere outside of the grounds of the penitentiary, where Wayne and Mickey and Mallory are signing off for the live broadcast. And Mickey and Mallory... Say their piece, and they put Wayne and oh no, Wayne says his piece. It, it, I'm just done at this point. <laughs> Wayne says his piece. Mickey and Mallory sign off, and then they put the camera on the ground, and it's time to execute Wayne. He seems surprised to say the least. He yeah, thought that he was part of the gang. He should have seen this coming a mile away. Well, you know that's what TV does to you. It, it desensitizes you and gives you a, a false view of the world. He should have known. He wasn't paying attention when uh, Mickey was telling uh, the story of the shaman and, like, you know, the story of the snake. That's what happens when you save a snake. <laughs> ah, I like it. I'm telling you. There's, but, there's a lot to this movie. And then we get our last great what-the-fuck unnecessarity of it when Wayne lets out this giant death rattle, this call before he's shot. It's not a death rattle. <laughs> he is... He's trying to calm himself. He's trying to, like, go back to, like, peace. He's trying to, you know, just... He knows he's dead. He's about to, to get executed. It's like when you're doing yoga. You know, you're just trying to get achieve unity of mind and body before you die. And then he's shot a lot. No free bird. He then, doesn't need free bird. And then Mickey and Mallory live happily ever after and have kids. That's a very simplistic way of No, of that's what happened. In. Anybody that's been paying attention to the movie knows that... It's not just that they're going to have kids and they got away with it. It's that they saw the light and they've been redeemed in a way. You know, they, he said it, uh, Mickey says it, they're not going to kill anybody else after Robert Downey Jr. I think that sends a very important message, which means anybody can achieve forgiveness. 
when it comes down to it, in this in the world of the movie, Oliver Stone, the filmmaker, got to decide their fate. And he could have had them killed, but he didn't because he believes in redemption and he believes in forgiveness. And if Mickey Mallory can achieve forgiveness after everything we've seen them do in the movie, we all have hope. We can all reach forgiveness, no matter what you do. Doesn't that make you feel good, Alex? Nothing about this movie made me feel good, except for Jack Scagnetti. And see, Scagnetti, in a way, you know, he also gets a little bit of redemption, because he, he gets that, like, head slap. It's like, oh, he makes you laugh at the end when he dies. The noble cause. What a, what a powerful, powerful movie. I still, you know, I hadn't seen it in a while, but I just found so many other, like, meanings and things, and I can't wait to see it again. All right, I'm ready to move on. Are you? <laughs> sure, let's do some real talk. All right. T-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling t-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers. Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart goes to Montreal, some dead guy, the Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, not Wyndham and Bradshaw. Wrestling! SmartsLikeUs.com, SmartsLikeUs.com, SmartsLikeUs.com. Selling you wrestling t-shirts. Also available, buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. Okay, so Natural Born Killers was released on August 26, 1994. Had a budget of $31 million for a box office of $50.3 million. It was directed by Oliver Stone. The screenplay was originally written by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, he optioned it off to the producers of this film for $10,000 after he failed to make it on his own for $500,000. It was chopped up and rearranged so much that he didn't even get a screenplay credit, he got a story by credit. The film was originally rated NC-17, and Oliver Stone had to cut out four minutes of the film to get it down to an R, presumably a lot of the gore and stuff we saw. And really, those four minutes that he added here, that's what made the difference? Because really... uh, It's 22 years ago, too. That's true. So. The MPAA doesn't like seven heads yeah. at all. It stands at 46% on Rotten Tomatoes currently. It is one of the more infamous films of the 90s as it is attributed as being one of the reasons for the Heath High School shooting, the Columbine Massacre, and the Dawson College shooting, and Entertainment Weekly said it is the eighth most controversial film ever made. Come on, there has to be more, <laughs> more than eight, more than seven more controversial movies than this one. Uh, I guess maybe in the 90s. I think that that's, I mean, that's, that's a particular, I mean, regardless of the quality, I just, where, where do they put Devil's Rejects at? <laughs> Touche, my friend. I guess they didn't have, like, video games to blame back then. Oh, or no, they, they did. Like I said, it was it, one of the reasons. around that time. And th those were just some of the ones that came up, but there's other ones that have it attributed to it. But yeah, like the Columbine Massacre, I think they even called it, like, NBK Day when I they think, did that. I think if some really disturbed person watched this movie and went on a killing spree, they would have done it. I mean, they would have found something else to, you know, click. Oh, I agree. The, I agree with that. It's just, like, we were discussing about watching this. If you're not of mindset to understand what this movie's actually about and you watch it, you are going to think that it just glorifies killing. Right, but you can say that about so many other movies. More so, but this one definitely is like much more stylistic and like visually and aesthetically appealing and paints like Mickey and Mallory as rock stars. But Oliver Stone has always said it's satire and exactly what you were talking about earlier, it's supposed to show how the media are sometimes the real monsters and all this. Yeah, and I think that really, especially in the director's cut, uh, because I brought up like that, those like two shots of Mickey raping the hostage, that absolutely should turn you against him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that is... It, but even without that, I think that... I can't imagine somebody walking away from this movie thinking that 
they were people to be emulated. Well, the problem is, too, when when younger people could see this and get the wrong message coming from it, too, the acting has a lot to do with it, because Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis come across as really cool and, like, down-to-earth and, like, kind of people you'd want to act like, whereas everyone else, all the authoritative figures in the movie, are just completely over-the-top and, like, turn-down-your-music type people. Yeah, yeah, I, and actually, I think that it's uh, it's a mistake. I wonder if he did it just for the rating uh, to cut out again that that the rape. I can't even call it scene. It's like two shots. Yeah, but that's because I think that would definitely, for some reason, you know, seeing him attacking a woman in, in a sexual way as opposed to just like shooting them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no going back from that for some reason. You know, yeah. or, or at least I'm. I'm my mind, but even so, I mean, I guess I was what seventeen, maybe when I saw it the first time. I mean, part of what I said in the previous segment applies, where I think that the movie is trying this tricky thing, where like, okay, here are these horrible people, but we're gonna try you, try to like get you to somehow sympathize with them at least long enough to where like you watch the entire movie. When I watched Devil's Rejects, I didn't have that reaction. <laughs> I mean, not to get too much into it, yeah. but I think that it was hard for me to watch Devil's Rejects all the way through because. I didn't see anything appealing about these people. You know, it's like, oh, they're horrible people, and I'm going to be stuck with them for, you know, two hours or however long the movie is. And it's not really telling me anything I don't know. Here, at least, you know, he makes them entertaining and in a very dark way. I think that the, the attempts at comedy here, they're they're good. There's probably it's the right approach to this movie, I think. But also, it's tricky. You know, it's like, I think that you need you, you need to be aware of, like the fact that they're still horrible and that, you know, the trick of like, oh, we're going to have them go against even more horrible people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's okay to get you through the movie, but at the end of the movie, you should be like, wow, they're, they're fucked up, you know, people, and they, it's horrible that they got away with it. I think part of it, too, is it's made in such a juvenile fashion, and like, even though I'm saying I fully understand the meaning and the context of the film, and I do enjoy some of the acting, I still just think it's a poorly made film. I don't like any of the like, schizophrenic and epileptic nature of it, like I was talking about earlier. It was a film that I did see for the first time in high school, and I remember thinking it was cool, and then years just went by that I didn't see it, and then I saw more movies, and I saw it again, I was like, this movie's not that good. It really is just a two-hour-long music video. Um, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be so reductive of it. I think that it has, like, important, you know, things... I don't want to say important things to say, but it's, it has something of interest. Uh, I There's go a good movie to be it. made with that subject matter, but this is just not it. I think if Tarantino had made it, had made his original script, probably would have been like a lot cooler. Uh, but before I, I get into my Tarantino rant, I think, I don't know, it's hard to judge how I feel about it right now because I had so much fun watching it this time, but a lot of it just came from, you know, like I told you, just watching you react to it. <laughs> it <was> just, <laughs> there's so many ridiculous moments. But in the end, I mean, I don't know. What does it say about the movie and what does it say about myself that I was entertained by it so much, you know? It's like, I can't really say that it's bad. The problem is, like, we're entertained for different reasons in it, and that doesn't... That means, to me, the movie's kind of a wreck because no one could get a clear read on the script. I refuse to believe that this panned out exactly as Oliver Stone had anticipated because... There's so many different types of performances in it. Like, we were talking about, like, Mickey and Mallory are supposed to be, like, cool and calm. And Harrelson and Lewis play him that way. But then everyone else, with the exception of Tom Sizemore, is just playing himself. Like, <laughs> Downey Jr. and Tommy Lee Jones are just so crazy over the top. And all the supporting characters are just so far over the top. It... But I think that they have to, because they're the heart of the movie. You know, they're like the people that we're following, so they need to be maybe a little toned down. But even then, I mean, they are... It just leads to so many tone issues, though. Like, I don't understand what the tone of the film is supposed to be. I know what its message is supposed to be, I don't know what the tone is. I think that chaotic 
satire. It, it's, I mean, it works as that, you know. I, I don't think that it ever, from, you know, the changing of colors back and forth at the very beginning and then the I Love Lucy parody yeah, and everything else. I mean, that is, that. it's... It's supposed to be this crazy, you know, it's not, I don't think that you're supposed to be taking anything that happens in it literally, mm-hmm. you know, it's all like a very extreme over the top representation of, you know, whatever it is trying to say in a, in a certain scene. And that works. I think that I can see at the same time, if you don't connect with that right away, the movie will just annoy the hell out of you. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I think that. The performances by Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis, actually, that that's your gateway into that tone, into that, you know, the aesthetic of the movie. And because they work so well, then the rest of the movie works for me. That said, I mean, I can point out, like, all the flaws and, like, all the... Sometimes the over-the-top stuff is just, like, it works against the movie. I agree with what you were saying in the earlier portion, or I would have agreed with if we weren't, like, trying to be sarcastic and whatnot. I think Rodney Dangerfield doing this was very interesting. People have said he wasn't really sure of what he was doing, but I thought his small performance was really good. It took him out of his wheelhouse, absolutely. I don't think there's anything that is gained by doing that I Love Lucy laugh track style of it. Because if you had done like that in the rest of the movie, and the movie was just like little snippets of different stuff, That'd be fine, but yeah, but that would be then. Then it works out. I mean, that I think the Isle of Lucy thing works because it's just that one scene. But why? It's like trivializing like molestation and child abuse. But I don't think it's trivializing because you still then you feel like humorizing, not trivializing. Yeah, but even then, I mean, I don't think at any point does it tell you that this is something to laugh about. It's. It's rather like you know showing it to you in a very ridiculous way, but it's not you know what I mean like yeah. I don't think that it, I don't think anybody's supposed to laugh whenever you see Dangerfield like you know actually like touch Juliette Lewis and like threaten to molest her. That's even though it's set as a sitcom, I don't think that that moment in the movie is supposed to elicit any laughter. And, and in fact, like most of that is not funny at all. I mean, no. I think that's the whole point that you know that's just like how we're presenting it to you but it's not meant to be funny you know and if you want to go even deeper you know it can probably add to the criticizing of the media you know and just how it's giving you a hint of what is going to come later I don't know I mean I don't think that it, it... it's the Freddy Krueger principle in the end the more you talk about it the bigger it's going to get <laughs> so Freddy Krueger like Nightmare on Elm Street essentially said what this movie tried to and I just found Nightmare on Elm Street to be far more entertaining well it's probably I haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street a long time ago, in a long time but I think that's probably a better movie what, okay, what what is the reason for making it like it is so like rigid and just like confetti, where it's just I think stuff it's just thrown everywhere. Well, I think that a, a more like subtle, a less flashy version, like the Tarantino version, let's call it, you know, would be better. Mm-hmm. I think this is a perfectly valid choice of approaching the, you know, to approach the material. It, it's just. I, I can come up with justifications for it. I don't know if those are like Oliver Stone's reasons, but you know the, what I was telling you earlier. I mean, I was it, it's half true. You know, that put you in the mindset of a killer. You know that that's everything is chaotic, and you know maybe somebody that's you know the way that the media can like attack you, you know, and bombard you with like all this violence followed by really stupid stuff, and you know it, trivializing everything. You know that's. I think that the way that you feel when watching the movie, when you're being assaulted by, you know, this frenetic editing style and, you know, the colors and all stuff, I think that that, you could make a case that that's really, that's the mindset that the director wants you to be in. Because that's the way that he wants you to feel the movie and maybe that helps you empathize with uh, Mickey Mallory. Does it succeed? I don't know. You know, it it depends. I think it can be very Mm off-putting, like it happened to you, but... 
I don't know. It's it's not a movie I would recommend easily. Or actually, like you told your sister, it's like, oh, it's worth watching once, yeah. I guess. Because you could watch it and really tolerate it or really like it. I don't know that I love it. I don't know that I even know what rating I would give it. Uh, Good soundtrack. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that too. I think, you know, when I watched it, the first time I saw it, I was mesmerized by it. Because I hadn't seen anything like it before. And that, then, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think that's one of the things I saw it once when I was like in high school, and I think that was it. I was just kind of you'd never seen anything like it before, so I was mesmerized by it. When you watch it a second time, the opposite of the Roger Deber yes. reaction is just like this isn't that good. Yeah, I I remember you know the more I watched it, I watched it several times after, and it was just like it's like every time I felt less confident about it being a good movie. Mm. And it's like you said, you know, then you watch more movies and you're like, oh, this is really not that great. Yeah, it, it's really you know the lack of subtlety suddenly starts working against it. And yeah, this get, I don't think there's any real comparisons to Devil's Rejects. I just I really like Devil's Rejects, and certain elements of this reminded me of it. But I think they're obviously two completely different films. Yeah, no, Devil's Rejects is trying to do something else. It doesn't work for me anyway. But someday, Devil's, Devil's someday Rejects, when we do Devil's Rejects, I can give you my whole spiel about Devil's Rejects. Okay, we can do that. So yeah, uh, as we said earlier, this was written by Quentin Tarantino. I think that's a widely known fact, but it was chopped up heavily, uh, so much so that I don't. No, this is true. I can't validate it, but I did read one time that he walked out of a screening of it because it was so out of his image. It certainly doesn't seem like a Tarantino movie, except for, uh, I told you this while we were watching it, the sequence where Scagnetti and the warden meet, you know, this long, like, walk and talk as everything is going on, and then they go and they see Mallory, and then they go and see uh, Wayne Gale trying to convince Mickey to agree to the interview. That whole sequence, it actually felt very Tarantino to me this time. I'd never noticed it before. And I could be way off, but it feels, if I had to guess, I had to pick like one scene that was lifted from Tarantino's script as is, this would be my guess. Because it's the only part where the like consecutive dialogue is cohesive and meshes in Yeah, with each and other. they have like this really interesting digressions that you mm-hmm. usually see in Tarantino movies, yeah. you know, that are like, oh, we're there talking now about, you know, Skagnetti's mom getting mom shot. Getting shot mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's, I don't know, it felt really cool in that Tarantino way. You know, once you strip it, down from you know you take all the all the bells and whistles filters <laughs> on all yeah. the Instagram filters you know, off of it. Yeah, you could just really see this working as just like this one shot of them walking through through the prison in a Tarantino movie, and I'll be like, oh yeah, that would be that would be really cool. So that's kind of like maybe a reason why you know you could argue that the filmmaking actually detracts <laughs> from the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it could be also one of those movies that you like when you're you know just getting into filmmaking and then the more you learn about movies you dislike yeah. what do you call that is that a success is that a failure you know I don't know be wrapping up here this is going to be one of our longer episodes but uh, I think Oliver Stone made this and Warner Bros. released this thinking it was going to get award traction I don't know because oh, sometimes I mean, people will say it was like a failed attempt at like award traction it could be I don't, I don't remember anything I wasn't aware of like any of that, you know, when I watched it or mm-hmm. when it came out. Actually, I don't even know that I watched when it came out. No, I watched it years later. I watched it in 97. So, yeah, by then, it was it was history. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that they thought that they were doing something that was going to blow everyone's minds. I don't know that they thought that... I wonder if they knew that it was going to be this polarizing. And by polarizing, I don't mean about content. I just mean about, like, you know, how somebody can watch it and hate it. And somebody mm-hmm. can watch it and be like, oh, that was okay. Yeah. And some and people can think it's, it's so cool. I hate it. Like, I watched it and I really liked it, you know. And then one of my friends from film school told me, like, oh, man, you really, you might like it, but you don't get it. You, <laughs> you, you're not going to get it until you do some drugs. Then you're really going to get it. And I was like, God, uh, fuck you. Now I really want to hate the movie just, just for that. 
the realization time I watched it, I was not completely sober, and the, the having the, <laughs> having that state of mind realized I was like, oh wait, no, people think that, and when people say that, that is such an excuse for something not being good. People have said that about Donnie Darko too, which Donnie Darko sucks. Uh, it doesn't. But... It does not. I think we're gonna have to uh, <laughs> file that one away for another episode because they had to have known it was gonna be as controversial as it was, though. I think so. I think maybe... No, I think that if they were expecting controversy, it would be on the side of, like, the the themes, like, the subject matter, you know, how gory it can get, how disturbing it can get, and the fact that you're following, like, you know, these mass murders or whatever. But I don't know that they would have expected it to be, like, the whole, like, oh, this movie's a piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that they anticipated the filmmaking itself being so polarizing. Yeah. You know? It's like, you completely hate the way it was shot, where it's like, I can see where they're coming from, and, yeah. Do you think its legacy is a bit unfair that it's kind of remembered as just this movie that inspired a bunch of killings? Yeah, because, well, I just told you, I don't, I, that seems like you're just looking for somebody to blame. I mean, if it wasn't this movie, something else was going to trigger that. In, in it was like people. this, Marilyn Manson, and Doom that got the most, like... <laughs> yeah, no, that's... I, I don't think that can be taken seriously. I think its legacy should be that it's a shitty movie. No, <laughs> I think I think it's... The performances are great. And I think that even the story of how it came to be is is interesting. You know, I do wonder if if this is Oliver Stone's first turn as a psychedelic filmmaker. You know, I haven't seen that many Stone movies, but I know that you know I saw Wall Street, and it's completely different from this. Yeah, it's, but when yeah. you watch this, and you know that the same guy made W with Josh Brolin, it just was like right. Oh, what? But but when you watch like JFK, I don't know if you've seen JFK. Like it has like that style of cutting. I mean, it's not as as overwhelming as in this one but there's a lot going on like there's a lot of quick editing in some of the sequences and I was like oh so he, he likes doing that but I don't know what point he started doing it yeah. uh, like I don't think Platoon has anything <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm actually surprised at how like I didn't have extreme reaction to it this mm-hmm. time this is probably the most middle of the road reaction I've had to watching it uh, I haven't seen it so long I really enjoyed all the stuff that there was to enjoy and the stuff that was just kind of stupid I had fun anyway because I, I, I was perfectly fine laughing at the movie. It does. Like, when you've seen it a, a few times, and even if you like it or don't, you just get a certain level of excitement when Tom Sizemore shows up because yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. Or, it's about to get real. Yeah, or any of the other things. Like I said, the biggest emotional reaction I had this time that was like caught me by surprise was the two shots where like you actually see Mickey raping that woman because yeah. I hadn't seen that and I did not see it coming. Like right after it happened, I actually pulled my phone and I looked it up mm-hmm. to see like if that was part of the director's cut or if it was something that I'd always missed. Yeah. <laughs> and no, yeah, that is one of the things from the director's cut. So the 46% it has on Rotten Tomato, this kind of comes into what our whole thesis is about the Rotten Tomato system being flawed because I understand what the Rotten Tomato system is, but so many people don't. They think it's just like... <laughs> a universal scale of judging something. Right. And this, like, there's no universe where you could judge this on the same scale that you could Paul Blart Mall Cop or something. Yes. So, I understand it's just We're an also because, Yeah, and also because 46% is not a... Well, maybe you would agree with it being, a, you know, on a scale of 1 to 100, oh, this is a 46. No, it just means that 46% of the people yeah. that voted for it gave it a negative review. Yeah. It's, it's completely different. If we were going with just, like a 1 to 100 score, like, I would give it, like, maybe a 75, and even then I would feel conflicted about that. I would be like, I need to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's But hard. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's really no motive at this point for it. What would you give it from 1 to 100? I don't know. Like, <laughs> a, a curious 60. Like, you need to see it one time. Not everyone does, but, like, if you enjoyed film and talking about film, especially if you enjoy, like, Oliver Stone's films and you've never seen it. 
And yeah, you could almost recommend it to anyone who's a fan of an actor in it because all the acting in it is good. It feels like all the performances are from different movies, but all the acting in it is good. By design. By the Fuck off. Alright, and then lastly, in Tarantino's script, at the end, Owen killed Mickey and Mallory, and that's how the film ended. Yes, we got to see this scene after we watched the movie, which yeah. just clicked on the special features. I like it. I like it better as an ending. I think... That, okay. I think that the movie would be a lot stronger, and maybe that's what's was bothering me at this time watching it. The movie would be a lot stronger if they didn't make it in the end. It's funny because... Well, Freebird we... plays. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's funny because it comes with... The, the, the deleted scenes come with an introduction by Oliver Stone. And I think him and I have a very different read of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> because he's talking about how like he didn't think it was necessary to kill them because in his mind they've achieved redemption. And for all my joking around about that... I still, I don't think so. They still killed 52 people. Well, yeah, and they don't really seem remorseful about it. Yeah. You know, in the sense of like, yeah, that was horrible. At best, you could say that they've been talked out of killing anymore. You know, they're like, okay, well, that kind of sucks, so we're not going to do it anymore. But it's not like they really feel bad about murdering a lot of people other than the, the, the shaman. And there were plenty of other innocents that they murdered. And if you end it with Owen killing them, it brings full circle the fable of the snake and the block of ice. Right, and I, I I like that. It's a shame that... I, I mean, if he had put it as shot, though, it wouldn't work because I don't think that there's enough build-up to that. You yeah. Know, I think that Owen would need to show up a little earlier in the movie, you know. I mean, just seeing him in a couple of shots, like he was explaining, you know, you see him at the beginning and then you see him a couple of times in the prison, that's not enough, you know. Yeah. You have to give it a little more... Uh, more weight and then I think it would be great that'd be I think if that was the ending I'll probably score it higher and I feel more confident saying that it's a good movie but that's, as it is yeah that's a big part of my problem with it because the ending they have where they live and happily ever after and they have this guardian angel that helps them like live that they met their maker at the end I would have been a bit more comfortable yeah with it. I, I don't think they earned the happy ending uh, no. and that is and I don't think that the movie and now now having seen Oliver Stone speak about it you know I, I know it's not just me misreading it <laughs> yeah he thinks that that's appropriate you know whereas like before I could have argued that well that's not what the movie's saying and the movie's saying that you know this it's a satire and you know the movie doesn't really believe that they've earned it but no apparently the filmmaker believes that so okay I'm knocking it down not 75 minutes <laughs> because of Oliver Stone is going down to like a 68 oh shit that's exactly the <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes rating <laughs> 70 70 46 is it Oh, yeah, then never mind. Right. We're good. Why was right. I thinking 48? Oh, it's because their audience rating is 84. Oh, okay. Right. And I flipped it. You're dyslexic now. Yeah. So, we're on iTunes, The Contrarians, not The Contrarians Podcast. Subscribe, leave us a review, you know, help get the word out. Tweet about us, Facebook about us, send us some hate mail, you know, do whatever you gotta do. I, I would love to get some hate mail over this. <laughs> I would love to get either people that, that hate Metro Board Killers... Just really taking what I said to heart, or people that love Natural War Killers and just sending you death threats. That would be amazing. If you have any suggestions for any episodes or anything, always feel free to send those in. Um, now we have an email address. It's wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. We have our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and we're on SoundCloud as well, so you can just find us on there. Anything else to add here at the end? Also, before I forget, our friends from Draft Zero, an Australian podcast about screenwriting, they uh, listened to a couple of episodes. They really like our Alien 3 episode and our Rocky episode, and they decided to give us a shout-out on their latest installment. So now we'll return the favor. Draft Zero, if you're interested in filmmaking, and you might be if you're listening to this, uh, is a podcast about screenwriting where they 
take a bunch of scripts every episode and they use them sort of like a, a school materials to answer whatever questions they have in that episode. And the cool thing about them is that they're just like the rest of us, they're aspiring filmmakers. So they don't claim to have all the answers. They just argue and analyze during an episode and try to reach some sort of conclusion. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But it's really cool. It's very approachable because they're not like these pros that are trying to tell you how things are. They're just like you and they're trying to figure stuff out. So I really liked that uh, I met one of the guys, Chaz, at the Austin Film Festival last year. Really funny guy, really uh, insightful guy, him and his as co-host, so I think you should give them a shot. They're on iTunes, Draft Zero. Next episode, I uh, know what movie we're doing, but we're going back to the usual format, which means that we'll pick... Well, what we did? We did Jaws last. So we'll like, have to do a bad movie. A bad it. movie, yeah. and we'll love it. So we'll have to figure that out in the meantime. Oh, <laughs> Elizabeth Town. I'm not saying that we have to, but that, that could be one, because that has a low score. We have to work up to Elizabeth Town. <laughs> I've got a lot of beef with that movie. <laughs> in the meantime, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we'll catch you next time here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. And Mickey, we're coming to get you. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. As soon as Julianne Moore... Oh, Julianne Moore. <laughs>